This is the Educational Triage Podcast. This week, we have the honor and privilege of having Dr. Michelle Kramer Barnuman join us on the podcast to talk about sleep. This is one of his fortes. In fact, Currently, his work is dedicated to sleep medicine with a focus on parasomnias and the forensic implications of violence associated with complex sleepwalking behaviors. He is on the BBC. He can be found on National Geographic, on the Discovery Channel. He lectures around the world. He has written over a hundred medical textbook and journal articles. He knows his stuff. And so the fact that he is here is a huge privilege. So why don't you welcome him with me and let's listen to everything he has to tell us today. Welcome back to Educational Triage. This is Tony and I'm joined today by the incredible, the knowledgeable Dr. Michelle Kramer Borneman. Hey Mike, how are you doing? Good morning, thanks for having me. Yeah. No, thank you for coming on. It's an honor. You are an expert in sleep as well as a forensic doctor. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, I am a sleep medicine specialist. Uh, My particular area of expertise is more along the lines of the neuroscience of sleep. And uh, this relates to understanding behaviors that arise from sleep. And some of these have forensic implications, but in order to put it all together, you have to have a pretty firm foundation of what sleep's all about and what can happen when it goes awry. Okay, so that takes us to our first big question, which is, can you define sleep in a way that would be understandable to a simple mind like mine? Defining sleep actually is more difficult than you would think. Um, But I think the simple definition would be something along the lines of it's a reversible behavioral state that occurs at regular predictable intervals of which you are perceptually disconnected and unresponsive to your environment. And this can be expressed as postural recumbence, which is basically, you know, lying down, you know, Mm -hmm. lying down, um, resting, closing your eyes, uh, behavioral quiescence, meaning you're not expressing for the most part, any outward behavior, unless of course you're sleepwalking, that's a whole other issue. But um, that's kind of the simple definition of it. And, And what's interesting of it is, you know, I'd like to kind of start off is that there's the general public perception, especially among adolescents, that sleep is malleable. It's plastic. It can be conditioned to our needs. So we can condition ourselves to be at school at certain times. We can condition ourselves uh, to have a certain sleep pattern to fit our lifestyle. And, And that's really kind of the first premise here is That's not true. Sleep is essentially built into the fabric of human existence with such karmic inevitability from which nobody can diverge. In fact, no animal can diverge. Every animal sleeps and all of them have certain sleep requirements. Human beings are the only ones in the animal kingdom that willfully and intentionally deprive themselves of sleep. Wow. So it's not malleable. To a large degree, not. Now, with that, there is some malleability, but not as much as you would think. So let's kind of talk a little bit about, we talked about the definition of sleep. So how does sleep happen? How is it programmed? Well, sleep is built within us with such karmic inevitability, which basically means that the time we fall asleep the time that we wake up and the amount of sleep that we need to feel rest of the next day is genetically determined, if not hardwired into our system. So if I take a population of adults, and this will be different from young children compared to teens, and we can talk about that in a moment, but if we just get a population of normal, healthy adults, what that means is we are genetically programmed to essentially, for most of us, 
typically fall asleep between 10 p.m. and 12 midnight and to wake up between 6 and 8 a.m. And yes, your mother was probably correct that, yeah, you need eight hours of sleep. That's programmed. That's, that is essential. You, you can't do without that. And to shortchange yourself has many repercussions and uh, impediments. So that's kind of the normal sleep issue. So can we change that a little bit by maybe one to two hours either way? Yeah, you can with great difficulty and discipline, um, but it's largely not malleable. So for example, let's say you were just offered a job and you're going to be paid an exorbitant amount of money, but that job starts at four in the morning. Well, you go, wow, that, the payoff is great. I'm just going to have to restructure my sleep. So, I mean, four sounds awful. It sucks, actually. But boy, the payout's so good. And you know what? I'm just going to go and reprogram myself so I could fall asleep at 7 p.m., 6.30 p.m., let's say. Get your eight hours of sleep, and I'll be ready to get up at 3 and be at work by 4. Well, if your sleep programming is such that your natural time to fall asleep, your pre-programmed genetic time to fall asleep is 11 p.m. That means you're shifting your clock forward to fall asleep earlier by more than three hours. And, and that's very and if impractical to do. Now, you might be able to modify it so that you could consistently go to bed an hour earlier. You know, And we certainly in a clinic sometimes work with individuals to kind of move the clock a little bit by maybe an hour, hour and a half. But when you start to go beyond trying to change your sleep time, bedtime, by more than one and a half hour, you know, either way, it's really difficult. And, and usually it's just not practical to be able to do so. It's, it's never good to fight your biology. And I think one thing we recognize uh, in medicine these days is that when we fight our biology for which we are genetically kind of built uh, to adhere to, whenever we fight that, we develop often medical conditions. You know, so sleep is one of those. If you fight that, it's going to result in a whole host of problems, some of which have chronic, tie into chronic medical problems. But a good example of it is food. You know, we're, we're, we're genetically kind of programmed to eat a certain kind of pattern of food. And when we have a food that is high in sugar, carbohydrates and processed, you know, sure, it, it fulfills a caloric need and it certainly fulfills us from an energy perspective. But what we put into our bodies may not really be what we're programmed to. So when you have such a high yield carbohydrate, sugar-based diets, that, that is, is on an extreme compared to what we really need, we run into difficulties. That's why we run into epidemics of obesity and diabetes. And the same can be said with sleep. Sleep is another one of those where if you fight your genetics, you're going to ultimately pay the price. And we have to realize that. So I think one of the hallmark features of our discussion is we have to respect sleep. And the hallmarks, the three main pillars of optimal health is, of course, nutrition, physical fitness, and sleep. Those are three. And often sleep is somebody's red-haired stepchild. You know, it's kind of disrespected. It's kind of pushed off. You know, we can set school times so that kids can go to school by 7.30, get to their athletics by 3. And, you know, we, we can mal we could be malleable with all this. But the first and foremost is if you make those changes, you still have to address sleep. And you still have to find a way to get adequate sleep. So I understand that when... Of course, when infants are sleeping, that there are neurons that are connecting in their brain. There's a whole lot of development that goes on there. And it also regenerates the cells, or actually just for cell generation, because they're still growing, correct? Correct. And then when they reach, by the time that they reach adolescence, though, it seems as though something else is popping, because I know that when... I was in high school, 
and even in middle school, there was something about staying up late. And, and, and we always had to get up early, but my parents wanted us to get the full eight hours of sleep. That didn't mean that I didn't fight it and that my brothers didn't fight it. I don't know about you, but, um, and we were very active. I mean, football, soccer, swimming, uh, tennis, everything else. And you would think that I'd be tired at night, but I really wasn't all that tired. So what happens when we reach adolescence that it seems that today the adolescents are hooked on their phones for hours on end. They just don't get that much sleep and they are in a sense rebelling against this whole notion that they need that full eight hours. I, I, excellent question. I, I think what we have to remember is our culture in many ways, Western culture, certainly that in America, is based on a strong puritanical Protestant work ethic. And so, so much of our schedule is based on optimizing productivity. So, so much of what we adopted as our lifestyle was based upon an agricultural environment in order to tend the crops. So we basically would fit, you know, our lifestyle and sleep pattern according to our productivity and the, the Puritan ethic of, you know, hard work and ethic, and there is no uh, rest for the wicked. Um, and, and so that's really ingrained into us. And in fact, that's probably why America still has three months of summer vacation. That's kind of a fallout to, you know, the agricultural uh, foundation of our country so that the kids can get out and work the fields. You know, do we, but do we really need that? So a lot of our pattern is really back upon it. And we need to rethink that. That's the bottom line. We need to rethink and realize that, yeah, we now got that nutrition's an issue. You know, we report the calories on every food product and it's breakdown. We now know that physical fitness and, uh, you know, regular exercise is important. And, and now we're finally starting to get around that sleep is just important, just as important as needing to breathe oxygen. So back to your question again, when we look at adults, adults typically need eight hours of sleep and most adults are going to fall asleep between 10 and 12 p.m. But like you said, that wasn't your experience as an adolescent and certainly not in high school. And that's true. So our sleep pattern and requirements change over the course of a lifetime. So if we look at how much does a six month old need to sleep well they need to sleep about 18 hours a day well thank god we grow out of that i mean never get anything done if that were the case although i'd have to say some of us remain as babies and adults but that's a whole other matter and we probably <laughs> that in but what's interesting is when we talk about that pattern in adults of typically falling asleep between 10 p.m and midnight waking up between 6 and 8 a.m some people are programmed to have a little bit of a different sleep pattern. Just like if I get a population of adult men in the U.S. and come up with an average height. Yeah, the average height is probably going to be about 5'11", 6 foot. But yeah, there are some that are 7 foot 3. But if you went to downtown Portland right now and walked around and looked for a 7 foot 3, you're probably not going to find it. But you know they're there. just have to watch the NBA basketball. It's the same thing with sleep. There are people that we call our delayed sleep phase syndrome. They're night owls. They're programmed to fall asleep at two in the morning. They still have their eight hour sleep requirements. So if they're programmed to go to sleep at two, then they really need to wake up at 10. You know, it used to be that now we just have to shoehorn everyone into the typical business uh, hours of the day. And these people really struggle. I mean, how can they get to work on time by eight if they actually fall asleep at two? But now that we recognize that, if we get these people earlier in the clinic, we can counsel them for appropriate career choices. I mean, this is somebody, if they went to medical school, probably shouldn't become an emergency room doctor, right? That's just not gonna work. And what's interesting is this delayed sleep phase or night owl that's normal for adolescents. 
So when we look at the age of around 12 to 18 or so, their brain is not yet fully matured. And the adolescent sleep state really typically is skewed more to being a night owl, typically more to being a delayed sleep phase. So let's say that we took all this into account. Maybe middle school and high school, maybe middle school needs to start more around 10 a.m.? There has to be, you know, the, the issue is ideally that's true, but we have to face the facts that um, we're still locked into this regular business hour schedule and we have to look at busing, transportation and, you know, what do you do with young children, you know, uh, and parents have to be there at 10. What do the parents do? There, there's a whole lot of issues, but the bottom line is, yes, ideally you'd be looking at a later time. So in that 12 to say 16, 18 year old group, a delayed sleep phase is very common for children. It's, it's, it's accepted that they're going to be night owls. And it's, it's pretty common for that age group to really not want to fall asleep naturally by midnight or thereafter. Now, parents who don't understand these issues with sleep just think that uh, the children are being defiant and they're being oppositional. And then uh, that creates kind of a, a negative family dynamic. And then these kids have trouble getting up in the morning because they're trying to be forced to get up at you know early times to catch the bus or parents to. And, and so the, it creates this dynamic when it's a conflict with their sleep. This is what happens when you have a conflict with your natural program sleep that you're going to have these uh, negative fallouts. But children uh, and adolescents uh, junior high and high school typically are delayed. And so um, typically you're looking at midnight or thereafter and they still, what's interesting is like infants who need 18 hours, adolescents need nine, approximately nine plus hours of sleep. How many of them get that? None that I know, right. but still they're going to have to figure out ways how to minimize the impact of less sleep. So if they're naturally going to fall asleep at midnight um, and they have to get up early because that's what culture dictates, they have to figure out ways how to minimize that accumulation of sleep debt. So, for example, in an adult, if an adult has a requirement eight hours, but they're only getting six hours of sleep, which is very common in our culture, that's a sleep debt of two hours. Now, you can overcome that, you know, and maybe you can over. You can compensate for that maybe over a night or two, but a two-hour sleep debt over the course of a five-day work week is 10 hours. It just doesn't go away. So we have to keep in mind that there are forces that cause conflict and we're vulnerable to it, but then we have to come up with means to mitigate or lessen the accumulation of the effects of long-term insufficient sleep. So for example, two hours less sleep a day at the end of the week, that's 10 hours. That's a 10 hour sleep debt. And if that's not uh, addressed, individuals are going to suffer um, by just chronic sleepiness and fatigue. They're gonna suffer from uh, cognitive impairment. They're gonna suffer from certain medical conditions if, if left unchecked. So we have to come up with a way to say, okay, we can accept that this is what's going to happen but we also have to build in to a disciplined approach to catching up on sleep. Just as we're very aware of appropriate nutrition, physical fitness, you know, we, we have to build that into the fabric of how we go about our daily lives. Do you believe that possibly starting at the early ages that, in the, that the schools should probably be teaching sleep skills? Oh, absolutely. I, I think um, um, sleep skills, I, I mean, one thing that to think about it is how many of us went through hygiene classes in junior high and they were boring as heck, you know, and it's like, this is appropriate hygiene. I remember I know, sixth or seventh grade, you know, this is how you brush your teeth. This is how you take care of personal physical hygiene. I mean, as though your parents didn't teach you, but I remember sitting in those classes and, um, but that should be part of it too. In fact, I'd even go further than that and say, 
we teach kids how to develop cognitively and physically, but we don't teach children how to regulate and become emotionally healthy. And I think sleep and emotional health are two areas that in general are missing uh, in educating our children. So I really think that the two go hand in hand. So for example, less sleep in um, teens. So what happens with teens? Teens get less sleep, they need nine hours, many of them get no more than six, they're going to be irritable, they're going to be sleepy, they're going to be impaired, but they're, they're going to exhibit themselves as sleepiness. Now, what happens with children who are in early elementary school? Well, I, I don't know, Tony, if you recall your younger nephews or nieces, but uh, I, I know with my children when they were six years old or so, you know, children at that age typically need to be in bed by 8.30 or 9. We all know that. But if you go to your child uh, or younger family member, you're taking care of them, and uh, you're taking care of them for the weekend. And you know, the six-year-old, it's time for to go to bed at 8.30 or 9. And you go to little John, hey, it's time to go to bed. How many of them are going to skip and go to bed? No, they're going to fight you. They're going to fight you. I mean, even though, even though it's their time to go to bed, they're still activated. And that's because right before bedtime, there actually is a little bit of potential for activation. Even though they're tired, there is a certain amount of activation there. So these children typically are oppositional. Well, that oppositional and kind of hyperactivity becomes persistent if they never catch up on their sleep. So children are very vulnerable in early elementary school to insufficient sleep by showing a certain hyperactivity uh, component, which sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? I mean, parents or teachers say this person's hyperactive, maybe they got ADHD. Well, there's a good chance that instead of throwing more medicines at them, which certainly some of them do need, many of them can probably get better by a discipline approach to protecting their sleep. So that's a manifestation of the younger children. The older children are more likely, for example, in high school uh, to be sleepy, falling asleep in class. They're gonna have more difficulties with studying because they're just not optimal uh, for uh, cognitive performance. And especially in those 16 and older who are driving, we have to keep in mind that um, not getting adequate sleep and you nod off at the desk at school, which often happens, I'm sure you've seen that, you know, if somebody nods off for five seconds while they're driving to school, driving 65 miles per hour, nodding off for three seconds, we've all had that, five seconds. I know I've had that when you're tired. We've all experienced that, but we have to keep in mind that nodding off for three to five seconds, most of the time is not a problem, but if you're traveling 65 miles per hour, you're traveling the length of a football field. So in the older children, there are there's much more stake uh, with that. And then in younger children, we have to keep in mind that, you know, I suspect there's a high degree of ADD that's actually misdiagnosed, which actually could probably be significantly improved in many of these young children by taking a more disciplined approach with, with sleep, which is easier said than done. But uh, we have to start to be aware that sleep has profound, broad effects. So what are some of the side effects of not getting enough sleep? Let's say, I, I mean, are we looking at what health problems? Are we looking at obesity? Are we looking at heart, um, kidney? What sorts of things are we talking about? Yeah, so the immediate effect of lack of sleep, the acute effect, say one, two days of inadequate sleep, the biggest effect is you're just going to fall asleep inappropriately. So you're going to have a lack of response, which is a particular problem if you're working with machinery, driving an automobile. So it's interesting that there was a study done, I believe in Minnesota, probably uh, 15 some years ago, uh, looking at the effects of acute sleep loss. And it was a really interesting finding. So what they did is they have actually a closed uh, road course here in Minnesota that uh, the Department of Transportation uses for various reasons. 
So in the study, what they did is they took a group of um, uh, young adults and um, they subjected them to one full night of sleep loss. So basically up all night. So one full night to no sleep. Pretty common as a high schooler, you know, pulling an all-nighter for whatever reason, or you're out socially or stuff. I mean, pulling an all-nighter I mean, is not a big thing. In fact, I remember it being kind of a badge of honor. Hey, look what I did. I pulled an all-nighter in high school. And it's like, oh, wow, you're a pretty tough guy kind of thing. I remember that's kind of a badge of honor. And um, so you take one night of no sleep, and then you put them on a course, this uh, obstacle course in a closed road track. And what's interesting is you do the same thing with these young adults who are of legal age to drink and you give the same individuals enough alcohol to be legally intoxicated. So the DUI standard, you're driving under the influence, blood alcohol levels of 0.08 in most, most states. So 0.08, that's probably like three beers or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you compare the two. And what's interesting is in one night of complete sleep deprivation, those individuals did just as poorly on the obstacle course as those that were technically legally intoxicated with just three beers. So if we think about it, many uh, young adults, and adults for that matter, say, oh, I'm gonna have one or two beers uh, at the bar, maybe three, no big deal. You know, and, and you may feel like you're full of your, have all your capabilities, but you really don't. And that's the thing is, in many ways, human beings have this overconfidence in their own capability. They over can easily overestimate uh, how capable they are when underneath all of this, the, there's this, uh, this, this compromised state, which can be a problem. So we have to keep in mind that one night to sleep deprivation leads to significant rates of error uh, at least when looking at um, at uh, you know, motor vehicle operations, similar to being drunk. So the other acute effects, if we kind of dissect this further, what type of errors are we looking at? So an acute sleep loss, one night, two nights, something of that nature, there are very measurable impediments that can be measured as errors. We talk about errors of omission and errors of commission. And actually, this will actually relate to how well you do on a test in the finals in high school. So, I mean, you can kind of directly relate to that. But let me give you an example of errors of omission and commission. So, if I have a bunch of military recruits and I put them on a firing range and uh, they each have rifles and we put the targets up at, uh, pop them up at intervals and some targets are enemy targets and some are friendly, you know, colleague targets. So, so you got this rifle range and you pop up the targets and an error of commission would be as a friendly target pops up, you know, cause he targets pop up very quickly and you have to make a quick decision, friend or foe. So in this type of study, if you, sh- if you pop up uh, a friendly target, you got a split second to make a decision and you have to fire a trigger. And the idea is if you don't, they're going to kill you, at least in this, this kind of scenario. So you put up a friendly target and you have to make a quick decision. Error of commission means you made a mistake. You, you, you committed a mistake, you did it, and snap judgment, and you actually killed the friendly target. Error of omission would be as the enemy target pops up, it's so quick, it drops down, you just didn't respond. So these errors of omission and commission is how we measure these cognitive impediments. And you can apply this to anything. You know, it's like, you're taking a final exam. You have an hour and a half to complete the boatload of uh, you know questions. You're having to go through it pretty quick. You know there's a time constraint there, and you know you're going to have to be efficient. But if you did an all-nighter, even though you spent time, it's probably not a good trade-off. Sometimes it's better to say, you know what, I'm not going to pull the all-nighter. I'm going to focus on what I do know and at least get the adequate rest to minimize the effects of these errors. So I, I think there's been a lot of studies that shown that, you know, pulling all-nighters really doesn't enhance the situation. In fact, is more likely to be a detriment. So we look at errors of omission and commission. So the, the biggest issue, the acute aspect are these errors, and then that results in safety issues. But if we look at 
the longer term effects of chronic insufficient sleep, then we're starting to talk about that genetic conflict of, of the genetic programming. And whenever you uh, have a conflict with your own programming, that conflict will often express itself in chronic medical conditions. So we know that in, there has been studies done in individuals that are sleep deprived, and then they look at how well the vaccines worked thereafter. So if you get a vaccine at different periods of time, you can take blood samples to look at various uh, uh, components of the immune system and see how effective that vaccine is. You know, is it really up the level that you want for protection or is it starting to level off? We know that individuals that are sleep deprived, their response to vaccinations is significantly decreased. So you're not offered the same amount of protection with vaccines if it's given in a sleep deprived state. So we know that the immune system is less effective in a chronic sleep deprivation. The other thing we see is you might've heard in the, the media that insufficient sleep or sleep deprivation is in part related to the obesity epidemic. Well, it's true because what happens in the long run is insufficient sleep causes derangements in metabolism and it causes derangements in hormone expression. So one thing that chronic sleep deprivation contributes to is glucose intolerance and glucose intolerance is the first step towards developing diabetes. So it has significant impact uh, on that. Um, we also know that with insufficient sleep, there's um, uh, a hormone uh, that is increased. And that hormone is, this, this is actually relatively new development in sleep research within the past, I don't know, five, 10 years. So for us, that's relatively new development. We know that with insufficient sleep, there is increased um, expression of uh, a hormone called ghrelin. And what does ghrelin do? It increases your appetite. And the hormone that decreases your appetite is called leptin. So when you eat something, not only do you uh, decide not to eat any further because your stomach's being stretched out and you're full, but when you eat, it also releases certain chemicals that says, you know, you've had enough. You're not, you're not hungry anymore. And that's called leptin. So leptin decreases with sleep deprivation or insufficiency and ghrelin increases. So now you have an out of balance situation, which is driving to, to eat and increase calories. It's like, how many of us try to pull an all nighter and you get the munchies, right? <laughs> it's like, you're, you're really sleep. And uh, I, we, we see this all the time in, 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 in with physicians and training is they're on long inordinate hours, spending time in the hospital, and uh, what's interesting in the hospital, what they used to have, not anymore, in the call room, there'd be like place, it's like a physician's lounge to relax and wait for the call to the ICU or the ER. And you're just kind of waiting for that call to be put in action. And these lounge rooms would have like a TV pool table, but they always had this counter of like Oreo cookies and snacks. And, you know, thinking that, you know, if you're on call, you're gonna need some energy and here's a quick source of uh, fuel. But we have to keep in mind that in these situations, we actually lose a certain amount of impulse control because of these alterations in the expression of these hormones. So we lose that impulse control, and then there's this, this, this dynamic drive uh, to consume more. And often when you're tired, you're not going to you know process or prepare anything that's healthy. You're gonna grab whatever is within arm's length, and that's usually high caloric sugar laden foods. And so there's that aspect. There's the immediate aspect uh, of that. Um, and um, with, with errors of omission and commission, in the long term, we start to see much more chronic potential. We see a, a less effective immune system. Um, we see um, uh, glucose intolerance and uh, higher risk for diabetes. When we look at young children, preschool age, when they're going through development, um, a lot of hormones are secreted according to a certain circadian rhythm. And if that circadian rhythm is disrupted because of interferences in sleep for whatever cause, 
um, that can interfere the normal expression of these, these hormones that are linked to the circadian system. So for example, growth hormone. Growth hormone in preschool children, children of young developmental age, if there's a disruption in their sleep for whatever reason, that can really diminish the expression of growth hormone. And for that reason, you can see that the children aren't hitting their developmental milestones. So we can now appreciate that there's a, a long list of uh, adverse effects that have profound impact upon our overall health. And only now is, is our society starting to uh, recognize the, the importance of it. Going back to something that you said much, much earlier and listening to what you're saying right now, it almost sounds as though once you get started that you just, the whole process starts self-cannibalizing and it just keeps feeding on itself to make things worse. And is it pretty simple to reverse that or how do you it get is. the body to re-regulate? It is. To sleep. Yeah, so um, one, to a large degree, sleep's not malleable. It can't be conditioned to what we want to do when we're awake, school, work, social, whatever. Um, so some people would say, well, geez, I know the next day is going to be um, a really long day for me. I'm going to catch up. I'm going to store sleep. I'm going to get a lot of sleep in advance, and I'm going to kind of develop this uh this kind of reserve as I go into a period, well, you, you can't store sleep in anticipation, but you can catch up on sleep. And so what we need to realize is that sleep is essential for our health and safety. And we have to have insight and recognize that when we are accepting a condition of insufficient sleep, that we also need to accept that we need to find a disciplined approach to catch up on our loss. So much of our sleep loss, we can't do anything about. Children have certain start times. Adults have certain work start times. Uh, you know, life happens. So we have to build that in. So in that example of uh, an adult uh, who is only getting six hours of sleep at night, which is probably most of us, if we look at a lot of surveys on this. I think American adults are lucky if they get six hours of sleep. I mean, we recommend eight, but you know, six is pretty common. So that's two hours less of sleep in one night. Well, we can overcome the compromise of that, knowing, yeah, I'm gonna be tired the next day. What do we do? We drink a heck of a lot of coffee or energy drinks, or we get up and move around a lot, or we have a basket of sunflower seeds, things that kind of help us compensate for that fatigue and drop off. So we, we can compensate to that, you know, with one night uh, or two, but at a certain point, those measures to compensate can't overcome the accumulation of sleep debt and its impact. So in this example of an individual sleep, six hours of sleep, two hours less of sleep that night, at the end of the week, that's a 10 hour sleep debt. Right. You need to catch up on that. So the good news is, you don't need to catch up by getting an additional 10 hours of sleep on that weekend. It's a rule of one third. So if you can say 10 hours of sleep debt on that Saturday morning, I need to set aside three additional hours and I'll completely discharge that sleep debt. And, and I think many teens do this, right? If you think about it, you know, you're going to school Monday through Friday. Many of them are involved in extracurricular activities, sports, drama, what have you. You know, they got long days. What do they do? They don't go to school. They probably don't have a sporting event on Saturday morning. It's the weekend. What do they do? They sleep until midnight. And then, then it's, it's, it's a problem with the parents because the parents go, oh, you got to go mow the lawn, you know, you know, get out of bed. It's uh, 8.30 in the morning, you're, you're sleeping in. This is not good. You know, it's, it all harkens back to our puritanical Protestant work ethic. You know, you got to get up. You know, you can't show that you're lazy. That's, that's a vulnerability and weakness. And so we have to recognize that the body will naturally catch up on that. So the easiest thing to do is to recognize that using the, the Monday through Friday work week example is to just built into the fact that 
Saturday morning sacred, and your body will naturally sleep as much as it needs to catch up for the sleep loss of the week ahead. And if you kind of start to calculate it, it's roughly a third of the accumulated debt. So if you kind of say, I'm not going to schedule anything until 11 that morning, that's a good way to go. So you tell your friends, don't call me. I'm not going to meet you for breakfast. I'm catching up on sleep. And then after that, I'm good. That's the easiest way to do is just recognize that, that get an idea of what your natural sleep requirement is, start to figure out how much less you're getting. And then on the weekend, use the one third rule to say, okay, a third of that I need to set aside to catch up. And if you just let your body do it, it'll naturally catch up and then recalibrate. So, so it's almost sounds as though we also need to learn a little bit more about sleep etiquette. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, for ourselves and for other people. Absolutely. And, and we have to, you know, I think I hear all the time, I, I would get um, parents bringing their teens in uh, to the sleep clinic uh, because, you know, they're saying, you know, their their child is having trouble being punctual at school and then they're just very difficult on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And, and you have to recognize that these kids, for most part, aren't intentionally sabotaging their own health. I mean, they're all trying to stay healthy and be happy and they know that they need this, but they're also trying to do this within the constraints of our culture. But in general, most kids aren't trying to sabotage themselves and their body's naturally going to want to get that sleep. So in this particular case, I told the parents that they need to accept that their child is naturally going to try to catch up on sleep on a Saturday. And, and that's not a sign of them uh, working hard or being committed or being disciplined. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a, it's, it's just the biologic imperative. And so the parents need to respect that and not add more negative energy to the children. Um, so, and, and as adults, we can do the same thing. You know, you, you go to college, you get uh, your, you know, eight to five job or whatever it is, and you recognize, um, you know, boy, I'm getting less sleep and to kind of set in your schedule times to catch up on sleep, you know, typically on weekends. Um, you know, I, I think though, those, those, those are important uh, things to, to keep in mind. And, and just as we set schedules to work out at the, the gym, you know, we kind of, you know, oh, I didn't work out today. Well, I better kind of catch up on this uh, the following day for those who are committed. Or I didn't walk today and tomorrow I better, you know, catch up and do a 40-minute walk instead of my 20-minute, whatever the case may be. And we have to have the same attitude with sleep. It, it's all part of maintaining our balance and health. Going to another category, though, what do screens do for sleep patterns? In other words, looking at your phone, looking at the computer. Right. That that's a that's a great question. So because we know the kids are in the beds, looking, right? Looking at oh, those, yeah. or else they're playing games, or you know. yeah, exactly. So again, the time that we fall asleep is genetically determined and programmed within us. Mm -hmm. So let's use an example uh, of an adult. You know, an adult typically goes to bed, at, falls asleep at 10 p.m., let's say. They're locked into that 10 p.m. pattern naturally, if they kind of listen to their body in this example. So the sleep process starts typically with sunset and also what's tied in with, uh, with the light is with sunset, typically three hours prior to that programmed bedtime, melatonin is secreted. Melatonin is secreted by the pineal gland. So the melatonin actually is secreted naturally. It's a neurotransmitter. And in many ways, it's the switch that starts the sleep process. So melatonin is suppressed with blue wavelength light. So if you go to any uh, electronic store, such as Best Buy, you know, I suppose Fred Meyer probably has banks of TVs too. Any business that's selling televisions, if you notice, they're worth their weight in gold when they show blue 
blue kind of images, you know, like underwater images, anything with, because you can really show off the saturation resolution of high-end TVs using blue, you know, like aquatic uh, scenes and uh, of that nature. It's like, one, it's not only appealing, but it also shows you can easily compare the quality of, uh, of screen resolution by, by looking at the color blue. So our screens, especially cell phones and uh, you know smart tablets, TVs in the room, they all have this blue frequency. So it's not just the light, but it's in particular the blue wavelength frequency that suppresses melatonin. So it suppresses that sleep switch. And in many ways, it activates you. So if we, if we think about caveman times, you know, they have this, this biology that kind of is, is set forward. If you think about it, in caveman times, the individual would wake up and what helps them to wake up is to open up and they have the expanse of the blue sky. So that, that blue sky activates the individual. It's, this is the day it's time to go out and hunt. It's an activating response. So it not only suppresses the melatonin, but there's an activating response to it too. So to have electronic devices with screens is counterproductive to sleep for the most part. So one, so one of the first things uh, that I tell parents is, well, and adults in general, is ideally you want to set up a sleep ritual. So in that case where we talk about the young child, six-year-old, you know, they typically go to bed at 8.30 or 9, but they're kind of activated, right? You know, they don't want, they don't want to go to bed willfully. You kind of have to kind of work on this bedtime ritual. So you have this bedtime ritual of having the child take a bath, brushing their teeth, taking the bedroom, reading a story to them, and that creates a ritual. And that ritual helps to reinforce the circadian rhythm and the effect of melatonin because not only do you have the chemical and the biology moving in your direction, you have the ritual of the external behaviors that's telling the brain it's a segue into sleep. And the same has to be done for adolescents as well, is they have to develop this ritual that it's time to shut down. It's time to start to move over. And the first thing you need to do as part of that ritual is to remove light uh, and especially blue frequency wavelengths. So um, the, the best thing to do is set a ritual um, of relaxation 30 minutes before bedtime, maybe relaxing, listening to music, reading, just maybe just laying in bed, but making sure that an electronic device isn't there to um, sabotage uh, the ritual. So easier said than done. I, I know most teens are going to say no way to that, but you can at least do this with younger children. It's amazing how many younger children now have cell phones. I mean, seven and eight year olds. I never would have paid that price for my children, but uh, it's amazing. So the first thing you do is tell these um, parents electronic devices have to be checked out before they enter the bedroom. So maybe uh, to have a basket or a, a nightstand outside the bedroom where the children check in their cell phone, electronic devices, gaming devices, they all put in the basket and, and then they can develop the ritual to go to sleep. That's, you can probably do that with younger children, but in adolescence, they're not going to give up their electronics, but at least you can give them the insight as to what are they doing. Because they're probably going to do that anyway, most smart devices allow you to switch it to night mode. So yeah, you can look at your text. You can you know quickly look at a YouTube or whatever. Um, most adolescents, most of us anyway, don't want to be without our text messages. You know, so we always leave the phone on. You know, we're always looking. What did I get any messages? I'm going to check social media. Who posted what or whatever uh, platform? What you can do with these smart devices. Uh, for those is to realize that you want to minimize um, the exposure to blue frequency wavelength. So you can go all these devices, and I think most kids know this already, they can just put it on night mode. But a lot of adults don't know about this. Most adults kind of lose that technical savvy nature that the children still maintain mm -hmm. or teens maintain. But most of these devices, you go through settings and you sit to night mode and it basically filters out and minimizes uh, 
the, uh, the blue frequency, so it minimizes that negative effect. See, I had no idea that that's what that did. And my devices all do that automatically. Right, yeah, yeah. So most of them, you know, some of it's like default, it's probably happening automatically, but, um, you know, a lot of us don't like, I personally don't like it. It's like, it's like I'm at nighttime and it's like, oh, it's already flipped to night mode and it kind of dulls the image and uh, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of like the vibrancy, but, but we have to keep in mind that is something within our control. My personal opinion is that the, the biggest, um, one of the biggest factors that um, has a negative dynamic is social media. I mean, social media has an incredibly addictive nature to it. So we kind of feel that we have to be connected to it or we're losing contact. And then we can rationalize why we don't shut this off. But we know that social media has an addictive quality to it that actually enhances the expression of neurotransmitters such as dopamine, which is a critical element in any type of chemical addiction. So we know that social media and this type of interaction has addictive features to it, which then, as many of us do, we create our own narrative as to why we need to do it. So, oh, well, aren't you worried about safety? Well, I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, probably not. I mean, as long as you got your carbon monoxide detectors and your fire alarms and you got your dogs nearby, if there's a, you know, something to, to a safety concern, there, there's enough there. You know, and um, so well, 30 years ago, what did we do? <laughs> what did we do? <laughs> we didn't have cell phones back then. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't have to have this 24 seven connection. No, I, I, I think there is uh, an element to this addictive nature that um, we often um, are complicit in that, you know, mm -hmm. that um, it, it's part of our culture and it's hard to break, just like it's hard. Do we need that much carbohydrate in our diet? No, but I mean, there is kind of, for some individuals, this kind of addictive tendency towards carbohydrates and sugars. And um, we have to, you know, keep in mind that we often have an overconfidence in our own capabilities, but we need to maintain an insight at least into that in our body that is a biologic imperative. And I, I still think you have to look at the three pillars of nutrition, physical exercise and sleep, you know, and, and if you kind of use that as a guide to say, okay, nutritionally, am I in balance? What can I do better physically? Am I sleep. I, I think if you kind of integrate that, uh, you, you're on your way to, to maintaining better health. And it's only recently that sleep is starting to get greater awareness and its importance. Yeah, perfect. I think this is a great time to wrap up. Great. I want to thank you so much. Is there any way that people can, are you amenable to people contacting you? Yeah. People can contact me. Um, they can contact me through my Sleep Forensics website. Okay. So sleepforensics.org. Um, or, um, and that just links immediately to my email. And my email is michel9626 at yahoo.com. So right. I think one thing we might want to do is uh, leave off or with a final suggestion is sure. you know, we talk about sleep and a lot of people are going to say, yeah, a lot of this is common sense, you know, but sometimes the biggest things we can do for ourselves are really simple, but that doesn't mean we need to overlook it. The biggest things we can do for our own health, not just physically, but emotionally is the simple things in life. And, and so someone, people might listen to this and go, yeah, this sounds really simple. Yeah, but if, if you maintain those principles and you really work on it, in time, you're going to see improvement. The problem is, is our culture is so often based on an immediate feedback, an immediate response. And so, but many things that 
support health and well-being take time and discipline and effort. So simple things being simple, yeah, it might be simple, but they're incredibly important. However, individuals who are listening to this might say, you know, I'm trying that and I'm still struggling. So when should I see a physician or sleep medicine physician? So when to see that it's time to kind of look for outside help or medical support uh, for teens might be excessive daytime sleepiness. I mean, they're all sleepy, but at what point do we do it? Well, if you have excessive daytime sleepiness that is consistently compromising your safety, particularly working with uh, driving an automobile, uh, or the sleepiness is to the point that you're concerned about your academic performance, you know that you can do better, but you're, you're really having trouble academically keeping up and you, and you see a direct correlation between sleepiness, fatigue, and academic performance, that might be something. Um, a sleep physician might work on the same principles uh, that I have, but there are many sleep disorders that can be diagnosed and easily treated to overcome that sleepiness. So sleepiness is, a, is another one. Um, insomnia, you know, insomnia, individuals who have difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, um, insomnia results in uh, poor quality sleep, a lot of fatigue. We know that uh, insomnia can also result in, you know, headaches, uh, stomach, gastrointestinal upset, but emotional irritability. So there's a high incidence between insomnia and chronic mental health disorders. Now, what comes first? You know, is it the anxiety and depression that's causing the insomnia or is it the insomnia causing the depression and anxiety? Well, it goes both ways. And so we have to recognize that if you're struggling with anxiety and depression and there's a sleep issue such as insomnia, that might be a consideration to talk to a medical personnel such as a sleep physician. And then there are individuals um, who, um, you know, really might have a long sleep requirement or they might be a night owl. What can be done. You know, sometimes you need somebody to kind of be a coach. So we have to keep in mind that sleep medicine physicians aren't just going to do tests and diagnose, but sometimes the good ones can be a coach for you. So, and, and kind of hold you accountable to maintaining a disciplined approach to optimize your sleep health. So uh, there's the behavioral part that sleep medicine physicians can help with to kind of just as if, if you were an athlete in high school, you know, it's like, yeah, you got your coach, but a lot of, you know, kids these days have their own personal coach that helped them with technique and form because they want that competitive edge, you know, so you go to a professional for that outside of your high school coach. And so sometimes with the right sleep medicine physician, and not all of them do this, can be that kind of coach for you to help you be accountable to optimize your sleep health, which is what? Great. Because it optimizes your cognitive performance. And many professional teams now have sleep coaches to optimize athletic performance. So it really covers a broad swath. So I thought I'd leave you with The whole thing sounds like a three-legged stool. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, you've got nutrition, you've got the physical activity, and then you've got the sleep. And if any of those are shortchanged, it makes the whole thing wobble. Absolutely true. So and if you have two things that are out of balance, that makes it more precarious. I think it's a good way to look at it. The three stools, like, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they, and they're all intertwined, mm -hmm. right? Like I said, the, the nutrition, poor sleep leads to uh, hormonal dysregularities, which increase appetite. And then that gives you a high carbohydrate drive with processed food. So then now you've lost one, now it tied into the other. And then when you gain weight, you're going to be less physically active, I suppose. You know, so, I mean, it, it's right. all interconnected. But if we keep in mind those three pillars and are insightful, and we have to take a disciplined approach to all those, we're on our way to maintaining and growing our health. Perfect. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Wonderful. Happy to help out. and. Certainly uh, happy to be a resource for uh, other interesting and fascinating sleep topics in the future. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. 
we were able to cover so much in that amount of time. It's amazing just how packed that was. And in the future, I hope to have Dr. Kramer back on so that we can bring things down to another level so that we can spend more time investigating more of that. It just depends on his busy schedule because he's so wanted everywhere. But sleep is so instrumental in everything that we do. So if we're not teaching it in schools, we should be at the very elementary levels and all the way through. So with that being said, I will leave you and we will see you next week. Be sure to set up a good sleep schedule for yourself. And until then, be healthy, be wise, and have a great week.